You're listening to Ants Talk. You may know my next guest from the new Netflix reality series, Lennox Hill, which is based around the daily events at a New York City hospital. David Langer is chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at Lennox Hill Hospital. In 2003, he was recruited to Lennox Hill Hospital as director of neurosurgery to begin and build on a vision of not only an outstanding clinical entity in the neurosciences, but also to create an entity and a new environment for patients and their families. Dr. Langer, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Great to be here. Doing great. Thank you. So I know you're a third generation doctor. Do you believe it's fate that you became one? (laughs) Um, no, I think fate means that it's out of your control. I think, uh, there's certainly a element that's in your control. And so I think there were lots of arrows pointing that direction. There was less resistance and certainly more encouragement. Uh, but I don't think my father in particular ever really, you know, told, it was just something I kind of naturally aspire to do. I mean, we see it, we see this kind of, uh, I mean, about 50% of medical students, one of their parents are physicians. And if you look at athletes, I mean, professional athletes it's so difficult to become a professional athlete statistically yet you know a certain percentage of athletes parents are athletes you know it's yeah. just uh it's what you grow up with what you're comfortable at the dinner table it's what you're you know your your ease with certain types of problems and it uh, i think also sort of culturally and psychologically i was sort of built for it mm. what sort of doctor was your dad he's a cardiologist oh wow and my grandfather was a pathologist oh amazing yeah. yeah, it was definitely in the blood then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, my wife's a, a doctor. Now, so my daughter, I have four kids. My, my, the three older ones, none of them are doing my youngest, who's my daughter with my second wife. And she's yeah. a, my first wife wasn't a doctor. My second wife is. But my youngest has no choice. I, I think she's, she's, doomed, <laughs> she's doomed to a similar fate. No florist job for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, was there anything else that you dreamed of when you were younger to become? Good question. I mean, I think growing up, you know, we were very uh, influenced by astronauts. I remember drawing pictures of rockets. Uh, I think we see a lot of these guys my age, like uh, Elon Musk, but 10 years younger, but, you know, Bezos and uh, these guys are starting space companies. I think uh, Mm. that we were infused with this aspirational and hero culture very early on. Um, So I don't think I ever thought about being an astronaut. I had this design of being a marine biologist for a while. I loved it. I love the ocean. I love to dive. Um, and I love, I had a saltwater fish tank in my house that I put together. I had a just fascination with the ocean. Had I been anything else, I, I might've been what I had done, but um, you would, you would love it here in Australia then. Oh, I know I've been there. In fact, oh, like, I have. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I've been there a few times. I love it there. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm very proud but of it. One of the guys, one time I was, when I had was setting my saltwater fish tank up, I went to the, to the, to the fish store and I told the, the guy, the sales guy, he was this big obese guy, you know, and he goes, uh, I said, I was telling him, I said, I was thinking about being a marine biologist someday. He goes, you got to be crazy. He goes, <laughs> if you'd be like me selling fish at a mall. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so true though. It's so true. All that study for nothing. <laughs> I know. Selling saltwater fish at a mall. Oh, that's like, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Now, the Lennox Hill series on Netflix was amazing. I actually personally loved it. As soon as I watched your first episode, I actually binge-watched the whole rest. I watched it all in one day. And not only was it beautifully directed and filmed, but it also opened my eyes to what actually happens in the burying wards of the hospital. And the beauty being it shone a light on the emotional side of the job and also the patients. 
How did you originally feel about it being filmed? Well, I was, I was, they were, Ruthie and Adi, who were the director and producer uh, and, and film and, and cameraman, had done a show in Israel called Ihilav that was very super popular in Israeli TV. And they sort of up and left Israel to come to the US to do the same thing here to essentially get bigger. Um, mm. The Israeli TV market's about 6 million people. So they came, they, they basically approached one of the protagonists in the Israeli shows, a guy named Erez Nosek, who's a, happened to be my fellow. Right. He, he, I trained with him, I trained him around 2013. And uh, when they came to New York in 2017, they reached out to Erez to see if he could help them do the show in his new hospital. He was in Brooklyn. He, he had just started his job. He never, you know, no, no way you're pulling that kind of, you know, there was a lot of issues with HIPAA compliance, so patient privacy, marketing. He had to have some heft to go to like the C-suite of the organization to get this through because the, the approval process was, was extensive. And he said, I can't do this, but you ought to talk to Dave. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of guy he was to be able to give something like that up. But that's the relationship I had with him. And I think he knew me well enough to know that um, the kind of person I was, which um, led me to this whole project. It was like, you know, I think that healthcare does a terrible job in, in letting people in. You know, we're, we're, we're basically described by fictional shows historically or, you know, reality shows that are just ridiculous, like these plastic surgery shows or, yeah. you know, some other, some other driving force. It's an ego or money or something that's really not connected to the reality of what we're really doing. And um, I always felt that I was at our, at our own demise. We, I think by allowing people in, we're more likely to attract young people and intelligent. There's a lot of choices kids have these days. And it bothered me that my oldest kids didn't even consider medicine, not that they yeah. were really cut out for it. But I was like, you know, you're, you're looking, we look at, especially in the social media age when they grew up in, our, our mentors and our heroes are YouTubers, athletes, rock stars. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I remember, you know, watching Tom Brady throw a touchdown pass. That's great. But, you know, what we're doing in the operating room has its own, you know, requires just as much effort. And we're taking more risk. And it's not that I want to be an entertainer. But I think, you know, the same kid that might think about becoming an NFL quarterback someday would say, you know what, I think I'd like to do this. This is, you know, equivalently, you be equivalently passionate, it takes almost as much, if not more, mm. training and time. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I just thought that was the driving force why when they approached me, I was like, we got to try to do this. And it took me about a year to get it through our health system and the rest was history. I actually agree with that. Funny enough, when I was watching the series and I was watching some of the actual surgeries you guys are doing, I'm sure it was a little graphic. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all over that. I can watch anything and not be disturbed by it. But I found it absolutely, the part I found absolutely fascinating is, as you said, the risk that you guys are taking every day, because it's such a delicate part of the body that you're working with. And it's, it absolutely floors me each time I watched it. I was just like, I, I, don't, I couldn't even put myself into your shoes. Kudos yeah. to you. Kudos. Absolute kudos. Cause I know I couldn't do it. Now during the series, we also get a look into one of your own colleagues, cancer battles. How did that hit home with you? Um, it was obviously, you know, in fact, we're filming a show while this happened. Originally we weren't really sure when Mitch told me we finally knew what was going on. It wasn't the first thing I thought of that, you know, be in the show and Mitch mm. wasn't one of the original protagonists. So I think, you know, we dealt with our own struggles internally when they finally chose just two of us. I'd wanted to do the whole department. And Mitch and Rafa and Jason really had no interest, but Mitch and Rafa, I think, were hoping to have more of a role. 
So when this happened, I, you know, I said, I said, I also thought it was an opportunity for him to define himself, to define what a, you know, when physicians get ill, it's very challenging. Um, yeah. there's politics, there's, there's trust, there's all these factors where you're going to go and you have to choose somebody. And if you choose one guy, that means you're automatically not choosing someone else. There's a tremendous, mm. that's a tremendous stressor um, for the, the patient physician. And it also is hard for us as doctors when they don't choose you and you're in that, that's your area. It's, it's hurtful. And yeah. so, you know, we all want to be the guy who's taking care of our colleagues. That's, I think, the ultimate, um, you know, compliment. Mm. And so, you know, I talked to Mitch, you know, John did too, about using this as a, as a way to, you know, demonstrate the personal patient side of being a cancer patient, as well as the physician being a physician. physician. It's so deep. And I think that he decided to do it. Further on, his daughter was a little concerned about, you know, getting, doing, going too far. That's why he sort of disappeared for, you know, in a few episodes because he kind right. of had surgery in September and didn't return to work until January. So, yeah. you know, there was a big hole where Mitch wasn't in, in the show, but I think he did a great thing. I think his, his boss, no, he's, such a, he's such an interesting character and such a unique person. I think that shined through his kind yeah. of curmudgeonly funniness that yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's really who he is. No, it was a really great part of the show. I actually really love that you guys included it. Um, another of your colleagues spoke of pause and reflect. Do you ever pause and reflect yourself? Yeah, I mean, you have to. You, you know, I think you're, you, you got to do that. We more often do that after bad things happen rather than when good mm. things happen. Although the show itself's given me a lot of reflection, which, was a good, which has been a good thing. You know, I think uh, I realized, just an example is I realized, you know, you, you have all this attention. People give you much more credibility. People are calling you that never used to call you and, you, you know, I'm not getting recognized that often, but that's kind of flattering. And you, you have a choice as a, as a celebrity. I'm not really a celebrity, but I'm a public, more of a public figure than I've ever been. And I think you can see how this can go sideways if you get too attached to it. And so the mm -hmm. pause and reflection, whether it's, you know, as a physician, when something bad or good happens and, and learning from your mistakes and, you know, celebrating your successes, learning from your failures or something like this, where... I think I realized that I, I had a new voice and I, it's been very humbling and, and almost enlightening. I, I can't quite explain the transition I've gone through, mm. but it's made me much calmer. And I think it's because I've really thought a lot about the role I want to play. And I think um, even the fact that you're reaching out to me from Australia is incredibly humbling. You know, I walk, you know, all the way across the world down yeah. under and there are people who've been affected by this. That's, you know, super, super cool. That was the intent, but I don't think I, I would have ever imagined that it would have, you know, been this, this gone this far and that requires pause and reflection. So you can take advantage of it and don't change. And yeah. I want my kids to be proud of me. I want my hospital, my colleagues to be proud of me. And I want my other nurse surgeons to be proud to be a nurse surgeon. No, that's brilliant. Now you're, you're the perfect person to answer this. And I understand if you can't, because it is a big question, but why do you think brain cancer is still so hard to treat while other cancers a little easier? Well, first of all, there's a thing called the blood-brain barrier, which John has been a, a focus of his life, Bookvar, that the brain has a, a kind of a, a moat around it <clears throat> that prevents the drugs that we infuse prolifically to get into the brain. So right. that unto itself is, is one of the big reasons. And we've, we've, we've changed, we, we use these techniques to break the blood-brain barrier and deliver drugs directly. That's in the show. That's had some benefit, you know, but these are you know, the brain tumors are grow within the substance of the brain. They're not solid tumors 
and you can't get fully around them. In, in the mm. periphery, if you get a liver cancer, you can take a wedge of whole liver out. If you, you know, to have a lung cancer, they do a lobectomy. There are usually margins and boundaries to the organs themselves, fissures and crevices. But brain brain tumors grow like if you have a, if you had had Jello, and you took you had say green Jello, and you when you're making the Jello, you put some blue in it. Yeah. You know, the center might be. The green might be green on the outside, but the blue would be really blue at one point, but then it's sort of blue, 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 and then it becomes like whatever blue and purple at the mm, edges, mm. and then it becomes green again. And and the thing is, is that that's how brain tumors are. They they insinuate themselves into the substance of the brain. They're not these gliomas are not cured surgically. They're 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 temporarily slowed down. And since the drugs we have aren't curative, um, there's no way to really you know, beat the crap out of them. They're, they're very, they're vicious diseases. You know, I think yeah. despite all the technology, uh, I mean, up until recently, the, the, the average life expectancy for glioblastoma was only about a year and a half. And that's wow. when you have a good functional score at the beginning. It's not that much longer than that now. It's probably up to two, a little less than two years, despite all the technology and surgery. But, you know, we learn life's precious and um, every day counts. Yeah. You know, John approaches his patients that way. Uh, you know, the way he talks to them and gives them hope um, I mean, he wouldn't have a job if he didn't do that for sure. But, you know, I think once you, you be, it's remarkable when people get these tumors, how their lives change and, and in some ways for the better, you know, having a finite understanding that it's going to end, I think um, it gives you maybe the same kind of, you know, it's kind of humbling and, and, and it mm. can make you enlightened. It's like, okay, now I'm going to live the rest of my life a certain way. And you know, I think you saw that with Chris and his wife, they got married they had a baby. I mean, they, they behaved as if it was never going to end. And, um, I think that's a unique opportunity for you to live a life in a, in a new way. And I think that's what you have to kind of celebrate when you have these things. It's very mm. terribly sad. Yeah, no, definitely. We're also introduced to several of your patients in the hospital that then go on to pass away. How does the deaths affect you? You know, none of my patients died in the, in the show only because they don't have that kind of practice. It doesn't mean they can't. Yeah. Yeah. I think to be honest with you, death is in some ways easier to handle than a, than a terrible complication. Right. Um, death is finite. You get over it. It's almost like a, a surgery with, a, and you have a healing wound, and it just the pain goes away after a while. But mm. a, a complication like a causing a stroke or, you know, maiming somebody. Um, you know, we don't do it on purpose. But when somebody has a bad complication, it's kind of a festering wound. Yeah. You know, you have to visit them. You have to see them. You have to do with their family. It's not like a one-off. And I think. Um, I've had every kind of complication. Uh, it's part of our business. Mm. I, I, I become more fearful as I've gotten older, as even though I've gotten technically, I think, better at what I do. I, um, I become more fearful in some ways. And I, I've, you know, I'm starting to not enjoy some of the really um, difficult things the way I used to because I'm just much more, you know, not, I'm just much more aware of, of the downside. And mm. I think, it might have some great young partners that are still, you know, charging and charging forward. And it's been relatively easy to give up some of the tough things um, more as much to lead and to develop young people and to give them an opportunity to develop their own skills and me backing them up and pointing out, I would do that. But without that kind of deep emotional connection um, that I am, it's who I am. I mean, I, you can't change the type of person you are. I don't think I'm kind of typical of the average neurosurgeon, which is one of the reasons why the show is special because mm. had they chosen someone else who may have a little bit not like me, I don't know, it would have come out differently. Yeah, And I, I agree. It, it allows empathetic people and sensitive people to go do this, which, you know, in the old days, no one like me ever went into this business because it's just too hard to handle. And, yeah. you know, I, I've seen that in myself. I, I, 
I, it's hard sometimes. And I think that frankly, um, that's one of my hardest parts of my job now. And, and learning to get over those things is it's it's uh, not easy. No. I mean, you saw with Mitzi how and Pat, I mean, that was real, and that was an impactful. To this day, I'm still impacted by what happened. We did all the right things, and it just didn't work out. And she yeah. ended up working out great in the end. And she's such a sweet woman, and I'm very close to them actually. Um, but um, you know, you saw the, the what I was going through in real time. Yeah. And um, that became so difficult to operate on her because of the relationship I had with her. Oh, really? Yeah. Second time around, you know, and you have to. You really have to be careful of that. Make sure you subscribe to now, Ants Talk. Um, Maybe you could explain to me, because I've always wondered. So in the series also, we see surgery happening, brain surgery happening, where people are kept awake. What is the difference there? Why are some people kept awake? Why are some people put under? These are people who have tumours in location, or in, in Christie's case, had a cavernous malformation, which is a vascular mass, mm-hmm. in location near their speech area. Right. We can the, the motor areas we can monitor with physiological monitoring, so we can find the motor strip of the sensory cortex using an electrode. So you don't have to be awake yeah. for that. But speech, you can't monitor with any kind of, you know, you can't, you can't stimulate the brain and tell if you're in the speech area. Mm. And so what the awake, being awake does is it allows you to test the speech as you're operating to make sure that whatever you're removing isn't, isn't disrupting speech. Which, you know, it's a very, probably the most complicated function the brain has. Mm. And it's, it's, very, it's in a certain area in the brain, usually in the left hemisphere, about 90 more than 95% of us are left brain dominant. And so if it's in this speech, there's a whole area of the brain that's responsible for speech. And when you, you're there, or you're close to it, you're, you know, you want to do as much as you can aggressively, especially for a cancer, without taking away the person's ability to speak, which, you know, what's, it's hard to live. It's one thing to have a, you know, glioblastoma or a bad brain tumor. It's worse if you give them a, a, a brain injury that leaves their, the rest of their life, um, compromise that way yeah yeah and so you know the, the, glioblast, the glioblastoma surgery in general you know i'm not a real proponent of that because you're never going to cure them anyway so why take that risk and so in general i don't i don't see a huge advantage sometimes to taking that kind of risk mm. but um on the other hand i think um with benign things or things that are a lot more when you've curative uh then it makes more sense because you want to really be aggressive. Yeah. And I think like, for example, Maria, who had a low grade tumor, we, we had her asleep, but we were very close to her motor area. And she actually woke up weak in her leg. Yeah. And had I remember that. But then she got better. So, you know, you, you're, you're always pushing the envelope uh, to, to, to avoid those critical, what are, well, which are, you know, eloquent areas of the brain and being awake is the best way to manage the speech issue. It's no other real way to do it. Mm. Now, in the last episode, we're also shown how COVID starts to affect the hospital and the health workers. How has it continued on over there? We're done. We have no we have no COVID right now. I mean, oh, that's New York, so good. Very, very safe. You know whether it'll come back or not is the question. I think it's changed me. I mean, I um, yeah. again, I think. Uh, I mean, March of I, I'm a totally different person in some ways. Not a different person, but more. I've I've had a. It's been very impactful. I mean, it was. Mm-hmm. I think it's been a combination of COVID. Black Lives Matter, Netflix, and then I, I've had a terrible complication that happened about a month ago. And this is the combination of those, it's like each is like a pie, like eat, there's the COVID thing, you know, managing our department through Black Lives Matter and some of the, you know, uh, minority people in our department. Mm. Um, the, the Netflix show comes out in June, which is obviously, and then I had this terrible complication happened middle of July. And so, 
it's been a very um, Quite a dynamic time for me emotionally. I think COVID's taught us a lot of things. It, it, it basically taught us that we're really not that, you know, we're not that great. No. I think we, it taught us about teamwork and collaboration, the value of people that are doing important things that aren't the attention isn't paid, uh, the importance of thinking, looking out for one another, um, the importance of doing things that aren't in your necessarily in your job description. Um, it, it taught us how well trained we were that we can, you know, make commitments and do things beyond the, the things we thought we could do. And it, it just gave me a tremendous amount of gratification to be, it is like a historic event. It's like living in history. You know, if you, yeah. I'm sure people who bought fun, the battle of the bulge or rat Pearl Harbor, or, you know, at the, what's the, what's the beach in, in Australia or New Zealand where the, I can't remember the, there's some big a battle there. I can't remember the name of the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember it either. World War II. You know, I mean, there are yeah, these historic yeah. moments that are, you know, some of it's fictionalized, but you know, historically, if you had COVID in New York City and you were there in 2020, uh, but it versus COVID in like Chicago, mm. New York is a different place. It's in, it's it's the center of the world, and 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 that's one of the reasons why Netflix was so successful. You know, it's if this was filmed in Philadelphia. I just don't know if it would have been as successful, not because it wouldn't have been interesting, but the, the New York city is like a character in the show where the drone shots and the, the types of people that come in the hospital and the diversity of the hospital environment that all kept, that all made the show interesting. It maybe one of these other things was like a, a one of the other actors, mm. but the same way COVID occurred in New York city of all places. And we were there. It's, it's a, um, it's just remarkable. And it was a, 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 a lifetime of experience, you know, all, you know, collapsed into those few months that was uh, very, will be always be very memorable. It's and funny. Living, living in New York now, it's a tough place. I mean, yeah, I can imagine. It's changed. And uh, so that's, there'd be this, just living in it and seeing this kind of collapse of your normalcy, coming home at night, not having my family here and walking by all these closed stores. And yeah. just, a, just, it was just incredible. I mean, even here, it's had a huge impact. Funnily enough, the reason why I was so drawn to the series is New York is my all-time favorite city in the world. I was, I've been obsessed with it ever since I can remember. And it's funny because I actually had a pen pal. I don't know if the, the, uh, the younger generation would know what one of those are, but basically I had a pen pal who I mistakenly met on a broken phone box, public phone box. And I called this random number and I got this guy in New York we started writing letters to each other and we've, and it's been what, I think 30, 40 years later and we're still in contact and I've been over to New York several times to meet him. And wow. it's, it's always been one of my favorite cities. I absolutely love it. So I'm always drawn to anything to do with New York. Now, what is your opinion on COVID as a medical professional? Look, it's a virus. We weren't prepared for it. I think the uh, Asian countries were better prepared because they'd been through epidemics before yeah. SARS and MERS, for example. Um, I think we also, the United States really isn't united. Um, mm -hmm. It's state, each state's like its own, own country in some ways in this situation. You know, someone said that uh, natural disasters bring people together and pandemics drive people apart. It's true. You know, if you can, if somebody else can infect you, there's a natural sort of, it's a natural separator. Yeah. And uh, when you have leadership like we do, which is dissonant and unclear and leaving it and letting it sort of, filter down to the guy with the loudest voice or someone who knows nothing or, you know, make shit up. Um, you know, it's no wonder that this thing sort of came apart the way it did, but it's, it's a lesson. I mean, it, it shows how, how weak we really are, how vulnerable we are. 
and it, it's 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 a, it's a lesson of the importance of leadership and the importance of being prepared for a high risk, low probability events. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that in the end, uh, we'll come out okay. You know, we lost a lot of people. Many of them were infirm. Not that that makes it, you know, any different. Okay, yeah. but um, you know, this is the 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 death rate is is just astounding. You know, in the United States. Um, mm. But that's because we we think we're great. We 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 have this you know version of the United States we want to be, and but you know we can we can do all we want on TV or marketing or or propaganda, but this is not propaganda. You know, this is real. No. Can't fake this. Somehow they are, but you know, it's it's you can't make up that this isn't didn't exist that it's not deadly. And the other thing I think that's crazy is that wearing masks is not to prevent yourself from getting sick. Is to prevent you from spreading it to others. Exactly. And this, this, the leadership is just bananas over this. It's just, and the fact that there isn't recognition of that, you know, there's a, I, I give, one of the things that's been very helpful to me is going through these talks. I've given a number of them. I've done a few podcasts and talks, virtual talks. You know, I, I, I repeat things because it's, they, they're the same thematic things that come up. Mm. And it's made me stronger. Like it's, my voice becomes more confident and I, I, I test myself and I get the feedback. But, I read this and I posted this on social media, a, uh, a little thing on uh, that, according to a, a story about Margaret Mead, who was an anthropologist, psychologist in the sick in the sixties and seventies in America. And she basically, someone asked her, you know, what she thought that the, um, the beginning of where she thought the beginning of civilization, when she found what, what, what artifact or, you know, what was her the sign of the first signs of civilization, in her mind. And, the student thought that she'd talk about, you know, the first sign of fire or art in the walls or weapons or something like that. Mm. He said, no, the, the first sign of civilization was finding a, a healed femoral fracture. Yeah. That when you have a broken leg, it's that somebody survived enough to, for it to heal, that it basically means that someone took the time to wrap the leg, yeah. carry the person until they could walk, feed the person, protect them from predators. Because in nature you break your leg, you die. That there's the predators will eat you or attack you because they'll attack the weakest of the, of the tribe. And that that's a reflection that someone cared for someone else. Mm. And that civilization starts when you care for one another. That yeah. that's the sign of, of the first sign of civilization, that caring for one another is really where it starts. And I think that that's the message of COVID. You know, if you just think about caring for each other and not thinking selfishly, and not just thinking about what's, you know, what's this, first of all, every the economy would have come back. If we yeah. shut it down consistently, you would have had your money, you would have had your restaurants, you'd have had your bars, but there's, we're, we're too selfish. We're too selfish as a culture. We're too selfish as a, a, and our leadership is tremendously selfish. Uh, to, just, just horrible. Yeah. And um, I think those things were the lessons for me. You know, you gotta, you, sometimes you gotta stop thinking about yourself for a change. And, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be, care about yourself it just means we all benefited from just doing the right thing eventually it just comes back around exactly and, uh, so i think that's that's for me the, the biggest lesson and connecting it that this margaret mead thing was has been a valuable experience yeah no i agree i think that the big lesson i i think it was getting to the point in society where it was getting a little ott and i think that we needed to hit some point where we do start to reconsider things and i think that locking people away in their own homes and giving them the time to self-reflect and, and look at the world and what was happening to it. Hopefully it will make a change for the better for all of us. Um, fingers look crossed. At, 
look what it's wrought. It's wrought these types of things and our technology, our adoption of, of virtual meetings and yeah. you know, this connectivity that never, we're never moving away from this anymore. This no. has been phenomenal. So, I mean, yeah. chaos breeds opportunity. That was my mantra about going into the COVID units in the first place. It's like, let's learn about it. Let's contribute. And by the same token, we, there was all this feedback we got and, and it, it contributed to our, really our, our, our culture, our local culture and the department got, got even better, you know? Mm. So, you know, it's, there, there's that in every negative, every, there's a positive after, after rain or sun, sunshine. And, you know, in the end, I think that that's been the best part about this, you know, in some yeah. ways. And it's not that you should take advantage of it, but these negative experiences can be positive in some ways. Now, my final question is how many hours do you work in a typical day? How does your day look? And I, as we were just talking before we started, was also you, you're keen on keeping fit. Where do you find the time for everything? Well, I think, you know, <clears throat> that's a good question. I mean, I've always been very energetic. You know, mm. I, I was a rower in college and I, I you know, it's a self-abusive sport. Not, not a lot of people care about it and it's incredibly painful. No one, no one cares except you who wins and you <laughs> persevere, you know. So I think that's innate to me. I think I, there's a sort of certainly self-abusive one, you know, push your envelope as hard as you can. Mm. So I think that's underlies some of this. I also enjoy the, the challenge and enjoy the fight. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I, I don't wear a watch. It used to be, it was partly because I keep losing things. I'm very forgetful, but in the end, it's really symbolic of the way I try to live is that I don't really pay attention to the time yeah and i think in the, in the hospital it doesn't make a difference to me i do what i have to do you know time just sort of disappears because i'm doing something i love to do it's not all great i mean today i had 20 patient office hours i was just ready to blow my brains out but <laughs> it, it, the, the truth is that you know i think the, the goal is to be we spend 80 percent of our lives at work mm. and uh you know if you have a job that's maybe nine to five and you're watching the clock you know, you may be working less hours, but as a percentage of your life, it's not, it's, it's not that much less than me. And, and, I, and I live a very, very fulfilled life every day. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not always perfect, and there's some bad days. But um, I, I get up early to exercise three days a week. I usually try to exercise on the weekends, too, when, I'm, when I can. Um, and um, I go in the morning before I start. I'm, I'm, oh, our days have to be there by 7.15, so i got to get, you know, i got to be on the out and you know there by 5 30 to start start working out mm. um the other days usually um if i try not to work out on a, on a, on a, on a uh, all our day it's usually between 6 and 6 30 but my days are long but i don't really look at it that way you know i get I'm the, the latest thing at the hospital 7 30 8 o'clock i'm usually there until six or seven um if i get out earlier it's just because i you know ran out of things to do and can put it off till the next day but you know, in general, I just don't look at it as, as, as hours. I look at yeah. it as a, it's experiential. It's, it's kind of global. It's not like I count the, I'm not counting it at all. I'm, I feel very blessed and lucky to have that opportunity. Yeah. When you when you're passionate about something, I suppose the hours yes. fly through anyway. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for your time and giving me the chance to talk to you. I really appreciate it. I absolutely love the show. I loved every every person that was involved. I just think it was an, a magical experience for anyone that watches it. How can people follow your work and life, by the way? We're on, uh, they can follow our Lennox Neurosurgery Insta, LHH Neurosurgery. There's also at the, Dr. David Langer, uh, Dr. D. Langer on Instagram. Book, John Bookfar is very 
he actually got a blue check before me on Instagram. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> JB is on Insta as well. Um, I think all of our, a bunch of our other guys are we're also on Twitter. Um, so, um, you know, that's the best way to follow us. I think, um, we're always, once this COVID thing calms down, we'd love to see people come visit. Um, we're hoping that we can, we developed a virtual internship this summer. We had 15,000 students signed up wow, that's amazing. and we had about, uh, about two, two, about 2000 at our peak to 2000 for every lecture on our zoom. Wow. Calls. That's so incredible. Was, so we're, we're, it's been really impactful. And I think this has been an imprint on a lot of different people. And we, that's, that's our goal now is to, is to sell good stuff and, and be, uh, you know, be symbolic of doing good in the world, which yeah. I, think, I think we need that right now. Definitely. I agree. Well, thank you again, David. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to hearing it and I appreciate your, uh, creativity and tracking me down and I, uh, if anything I can do for you ever uh, please feel free to reach out and hopefully we can meet face to face someday yeah when I'm in New York look out no. <laughs> likewise exactly fantastic thank you again take care buddy bye 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 ants talk it's like Oprah but not